Romans chapter 12, we're going to read the first eight verses. I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. For I say, through the grace given to me, to everyone who is among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think soberly, as God has dealt to each one a measure of faith. For as we have many members in one body, but all the members do not have the same function, so we, being many, are one body in Christ, and individually members of one another. Having then gifts differing according to the grace that is given to us, let us use them. If prophecy, let us prophesy in proportion to our faith. Or ministry, let us use it in our ministering. He who teaches in teaching, he who exhorts in exhortation, he who gives with liberality, he who leads with diligence, he who shows mercy with cheerfulness. Once upon a time, a farmer was out in his fields when he noticed a strange cloud formation in the sky. There overhead, he could make out the letters P and C. He thought, wow, the Lord is speaking to me. And he concluded, God must want me to preach Christ. P and C, preach Christ. Well, the farmer sold his farm. He enrolled in the Bible college. He obtained his education. He got his credentials. He accepted a position as a local pastor, and he preached his first sermon. But it was awful, man. The fella stunk. Boring with a capital B. Obviously, he was a terrible teacher. One of the church members familiar with his call to ministry approached him after the sermon and asked him, Pastor, when you saw that PC in the clouds, are you sure the Lord wasn't telling you to plant corn? <laughs> Without a doubt, here is the most common question a pastor gets asked. How do I determine God's will for my life? It's a question that baffles many Christians, but it really shouldn't. For finding God's will for your life is not that perplexing. So much of uh, of so much of it is getting your life in position to hear God's voice. God wants you to know His will more than you do. He's faithful to speak to you in ways that you can hear. See, once you've taken certain steps, and once you've gotten your life in the proper position, walking in the will of God is really not that difficult. This evening, I want to talk to you. I want us to learn how to move in the will of God. And in these first eight verses of Romans 12, Paul lists for us six simple steps to walk in God's will. If you're taking notes tonight, here's where you need to jot some things down. Six steps to know God's will. Step number one, present your body. Present your body. Step number two, renew your mind. Step number three, humble your heart. Step four, 
Exercise your faith. Step five, find your place. And then step number six, use your gift. Here's how you discover God's will for your life. You present your body, you renew your mind, you humble your heart, you exercise your faith, you then find your place, and then you use your gift. Well, here's step number one. You'll never walk in God's will until you commit yourself to Him. Let's read again verse 1. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, wholly acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. The first step for any believer to live his or her life in the will of God is to present your body to God. Have you done this? Have you given your bod to God? You know, in the Old Testament, the Old Testament sacrifice was a butchered carcass. But God no longer likes His sacrifices well done. Today, God orders His sacrifices rare. He wants His sacrifices alive, still kicking and mooing on the plate. God is now into living sacrifices. You remember Abraham's son Isaac? He was a living sacrifice. He willingly offered his body to God and was literally bound to that altar. This meant that Isaac had no plans of his own. There was nothing he had to do, no place he had to be, no one he had to see. Isaac made himself available for whatever the father had in mind. And the first step in knowing God's will is you presenting your body to God as well. It reminds me of the little boy. He was sitting out at the end of the row on a Sunday morning when the church offering plate was passed. He took the plate, he set it down in the aisle, and then he jumped up and he stepped inside the offering plate. Of course, the usher asked, Son, what are you doing? He replied, Well, I learned in Sunday school this morning that I'm supposed to give myself to God. How right he was, though. Years ago, the city of Portland, they sponsored a handball championship. Surprisingly, it was won by a man 39 years old. In order to prevail, the man had to defeat challengers half his age and in much better condition. In addition, this fellow was a military veteran who had lost one of his arms in combat. When asked how he overcome such enormous obstacles to win the event, he said this, Decisions! Handball is a game of decisions. With each play, you have to decide if you're going to use your right hand or your left. For me, that decision is already made. I can focus my concentration elsewhere. You see, when we give ourselves to God totally and completely, we're no longer torn in two directions. It takes a lot of effort and concentration to straddle a fence, doesn't it? Once you decide who you intend to please in your life, then you can channel all of your energies toward walking in His will. This is why the first step to walk in the will of God is to present your body. Have you done that? Have you presented your body to God? Well, the next step to live in God's will is in verse 2. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what is that good 
and acceptable and perfect will of God. I love how the Phillips translation renders verse 2. It says, Don't let the world around you squeeze you into its own mold. Resist the pressure to conform, to be like everyone else, to just go with the flow, to run with the pack. The second step to walking in the will of God is to renew your mind. Learn to see from God's viewpoint. You know, we usually think of peer pressure as an adolescent problem, but many young adults are tempted as well. I heard once of a retail store in Utah that bought several used cars and parked them out in the front parking lot in front of their shop. It created the impression that their store was the place to be. Business improved immediately. I hope you don't fall for that kind of a trick. A Christian doesn't just do what everyone else is doing. Don't run with the pack. Please, God, don't just go with the flow. Remember, toilet paper goes with the flow. (laughs) Not a Christian. If we're going to walk in God's will, we've got to decide in advance that we're going to swim against the current. Faithfulness goes upstream, not downstream. Rather than blend in, a Christian needs to stand out. We need to think God's thoughts. Be conformed, not to this world, but be transformed. God wants to create in us new attitudes and new perspectives. He wants us to be spiritually motivated people. He hopes to renew our minds. I've heard it said this way, a Christian is either a thermometer or a thermostat. You know, some people are thermometers. They're always conforming to room temperature. They want to be cool, or they gravitate toward what's hot. Whereas other people are thermostats. They don't register the prevailing temperature, they set it. You need to make it your goal to change your world, not be changed by it. You be the trendsetter. Don't conform, be transformed. You find God's will by renewing your mind. Well, third... I want you to notice, to walk in God's will, it requires that we humble our hearts. We present our body, we renew our minds, and we humble our hearts. He says, For I say through the grace given to me, to everyone who is among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think soberly. You know, when God begins to work in our lives, our tendency is to let it go to our heads. We can get proud. We can take the credit. We forget the scoreboard of our lives always reads, me zero, God everything. Do you think too highly of yourself? In high school, I played basketball, and I thought I was pretty good. In fact, I was a legend in my own mind. The older I get, the better I was, as a matter of fact. One night in particular, Uh, I was proud of the fact that I was in the starting lineup. And so when we ran onto the floor, we did our few warm-ups, and I walked over to the bench to pull off my my warm-ups. Well, it wasn't until my pants were about halfway down that I realized that I had put on my warm-up pants without putting on my gym shorts first. I was so embarrassed. My, oh, my. A couple of the knuckleheads behind me saw me and ragged me the whole game. I scored two points all night long. I was so rattled I couldn't play. 
You know, God has a way of releasing a little air out of an inflated head, doesn't he? <laughs> Paul tells us that we need to see ourselves soberly. The Greek word means to be in one's right mind. It was a legal term used in a last will and testament. It validated a person's sanity. To think soberly was to think objectively and rationally and honestly. It was to have a sane and objective estimation of yourself. We should never be proud, but neither should we be self-deprecating or self-abasing. If I have a talent or if I do a job well, there's nothing wrong with acknowledging your skill. Just as long as you keep it all in the proper perspective. One night after dinner, President Teddy Roosevelt and an overnight guest, they walked out onto the White House lawn to talk about some vital matters of national security. They both felt very important. After a long discussion, President Roosevelt peered into the heavens and he pointed to a patch of faint light next to the constellation of Pegasus. And he said to his friend, that's the spiral galaxy of Andromeda. It's as large as the Milky Way. It's one of a hundred million galaxies and it consists of a hundred billion suns, each larger than our own. Then Roosevelt turned back to the White House and he said, Now I think we're small enough. Let's go to bed. That'd be good for you to do tonight. We'll get to see the stars as well. Hey, compare yourself to me and you'll loom large in your own eyes. But if you think soberly, if you stack yourself up against the God who hung the heavens and who holds them in His hands, your stature will dramatically shrink. Don't worry, God is fine when you go to bed. One step to walk in God's will is to humble your heart. A fourth step is to exercise your faith. Paul says in verse 3, to think soberly as God has dealt to each one a measure of faith. You see, one way to miss God's will is to be too big, to think too highly of yourself. But another way is to be too small. It's to think too lowly of yourself. You can say, oh, who am I to serve the Lord? I can't possibly do anything for God. He would never want to use me. And a false humility provides a convenient excuse. Sure, you're a nobody. But you got to know, God specializes in using nobodies. God uses nobodies when they trust in Him. Yes, God never likes a head inflated with pride, but God does desire a heart inflated with faith. And to each of us, God has given a measure of faith. Don't tell me you don't have faith. You demonstrate faith whenever you climb into your 1,200-pound suicide machine and speed 60 miles an hour down the freeway, trusting only in a thin sheet of metal to stop you from plowing into other high-speed motorists. I'm just saying, to each of us, God gives a measure of faith. And He guides those, He leads those who use that faith. Horse racing enthusiasts will remember the famed thoroughbred the Triple Crown winner, Secretariat. In the Kentucky Derby, a mile race, Secretariat had a faster time for each successive quarter mile that he ran. The horse got stronger as the race progressed. And the same happens in the Christian life. Faith is like a muscle. Exercise it and it'll grow. 
And the more your faith grows, the more guidance God supplies. Hey, every long-haul truck driver understands that it's awfully hard to steer an 18-wheeler while it's standing still. What do you got to do? You got to get that big boy rolling. And then you can steer it with your little pinky. God guides us when we rise up and step out in faith. Sometimes He doesn't tell us the next step until we've had faith enough to take the first step. When we use our faith to apply what we know, God reveals more. That's why to walk in the will of God, we need to exercise our faith. Well, the fifth step to walking in God's will is to find your place. For when you come to Christ, you become part of His forever family. And that's why you will never find God's will isolated and alone. God's direction is best discerned and lived out in the community of other believers. Read again verses 4 and 5. For as we have many members in one body, but all the members do not have the same function, so we being many are one body in Christ and individually members of one another. Did you know that if you're an average adult, or if you're an adult of average weight and height, it's amazing what your body accomplishes every 24 hours. Did you know that your heart beats 103,689 times each day? Your blood travels 12,000 miles. You take in 23,040 breaths. You inhale 438 cubic feet of air. You eat three and a quarter pounds of food. Some of us a little more, some of us a little less. You drink 2.9 quarts of liquid. You lose seven-eighths of a pound of waste. You move 750 muscles. Your nails grow 0.000046 of an inch. Your hair grows, if <laughs> you've still got hair, your hair grows 0.01714 of an inch, and you exercise 7 million brain cells every single day. No wonder you feel tired at the end of a day. See, your body is a miracle of precision engineering. It's made up of several trillion cells all functioning as one unit, a blend of unity and diversity and mutuality. And it's interesting that God chooses to refer to His church as a body. We are members of one body, the body of Christ. And we have been called to rub shoulders with each other and work together and support one another as we live. Every Christian has been called to lay aside their personal agendas and cooperate for the greater good. As much as you might cringe at the thought, you need me, and I need you. We need each other. Our spiritual health and our effectiveness is dependent on our togetherness. The young adults group at Calvary Chapel Miami will only be as strong as you are when you come together. Did you hear about the terrible controversy down at the first church of the hand tools? This was terrible. Some of the members started to gripe about Brother Hammer. That guy's too forceful, man. He's pounding home his points. He keeps nailing the rest of us. 
Well, Brother Hammer, he pointed to Brother Screwdriver. He said, well, I'm no worse than him. He's always going around in circles. And Brother Punch has to help him get started. That angered Brother Screwdriver. What about Brother Plane over there? He's all, you know, he, he's all surface. There's no depth to him. Brother Plane shouted at Brother Tape Measure. Well, you're so judgmental. You're always measuring people up, sizing them up. You always think you're right. Finally, Brother Tape Measure turned and he pointed his finger at Brother Sandpaper. Don't look at me. You're the one that's rough and gritty. You're always rubbing people the wrong way. Why don't you all just go back into the box? That's when the master carpenter arrived. Jesus put on his carpenter's apron and he went to work building a pulpit from which the word of God would be preached. He used the hammer and the screwdriver and the punch and the plane and the tape measure and the sandpaper, each in just the right way at just the right time. Well, finally, Brother Saul saw it. He's supposed to laugh at that. <laughs> he rose up and he informed all the others. He said, brothers, we're all tools of equal importance in the hands of the Lord. And so are we. So are we. God guides us when we acknowledge our interdependence and when we commit ourselves to one another. Fail to find your place in the body of Christ. Try to go it alone. Be a lone ranger for Jesus. Distance yourself from other people in the church and you'll hinder yourself from finding God's will for your life. Well, notice the sixth and the final step to walking in God's will. It's to use your gift. You know, it just makes sense that God's plan for us employs and utilizes His gifts to us. His Spirit has given us certain spiritual gifts. God's equipping is certainly in anticipation of His will for our lives. And here in verses 6 through 8, Paul lists several of the gifts of the Holy Spirit. He says, having then gifts differing according to the grace that is given to us, let us use them. If prophecy, let us prophesy in proportion to our faith. Or ministry, let us use it in our ministering. He who teaches in teaching. He who exhorts in exhortation. He who gives with liberality or with no strings attached. He who leads with diligence, and he who shows mercy with cheerfulness. Did you know that God has given to each of us certain spiritual gifts? To some of you, he may have given more than one gift, but to each of us, he has given at least one gift. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 4-6 through 6 tells us, There are diversities of gifts, but the same Spirit. There are differences of ministries, but the same Lord. And there are diversities of activities, but it is the same God who works all in all. Some Bible teachers there, they see three categories of spiritual gifts. The first category Paul calls gifts or charismata. The second are ministries. And the third are activities, or in the Greek, energio or energies. Risking a little oversimplification here, 
This points to three types of spiritual gifts. Motivations, ministries, and manifestations. If you want to look into this further, the manifestations of the Spirit are listed in 1 Corinthians 12. The ministries of the Spirit are found in Ephesians 4. And the motivations of the Holy Spirit are right here in Romans chapter 12. Now this being true, the gifts listed in our text are basic motivations that the Holy Spirit places in our spirit at the time of our conversion. In doing so, God colors our perspective with a tint. The Spirit writes His will on our hearts by planting in us certain spiritual tendencies. Our motivational gift is what determines how we approach and react to situations. Ultimately, it determines how effective we can be in the body of Christ and where we can be most used. Thus, recognizing and utilizing our spiritual gift is crucial to walking in God's will. Now realize, a spiritual gift is not a natural talent. It's not a learned skill. It's a supernatural enabling that you would never possess if it hadn't been given to you by the Holy Spirit. The Greek word charismata combines two words, charis, which is grace, and mata, which is gifts. Your motivational gift is a grace gift. You don't deserve it. You've done nothing to earn it. It's prompted by God's grace. And Paul lists for us here seven possible motivational gifts. The first gift is prophecy. Sometimes we hear, hear the word prophecy and we think of it as prediction or premonition. We think it's a synonym for forecasting the future. We associate it with foretelling. But its primary meaning is that of forthtelling. It's been said, a prophet was not known primarily for his hindsight or his foresight, but for his insight. With this gift, God stirs up our hearts. He fills our minds with a message. He opens our mouth, and then the prophet uses his faith to utter the specific message that God has given him. The prophet is sort of like God's bullhorn. He declares God's truth loud and clear. And the person with this motivational gift is quick to take a stand. This is the person who loves to trumpet God's truth. He insists on correction and righteousness. He or she sees issues as black and white. They refuse to compromise. The prophet rises up in faith and without fear of offending, he boldly speaks the particular word that God has laid upon his heart. How we need the gift of prophecy in the body of Christ. The second motivational gift though on this list is ministry. The root word here is servant. Now understand, we have all been called to be servants. But the person with this gift goes above and beyond the call of duty. He depicts God's truth. The person with the gift of ministry has a supernatural knack for helping others in practical ways. Do you know anybody like that? They just enjoy serving the Lord and helping others serve as well. I'll never forget one Saturday I was at church and I saw this brother. He was busy doing a handful of odd jobs that we really needed done. And I went to tell him how much I appreciated what he was doing. And his reply was classic. 
He said, don't mention it. It's just what I'm here for. You see, the person with the gift of ministry, this is what they're here for. They just love helping out and serving in practical ways. They seek no recognition. They desire no payback. Their reward is the fulfillment that comes from using their gift to the glory of God. He's at perfect peace knowing what he's here for and doing it well. Well, the third motivational gift is the gift of teaching. And this is my gift. Man, nothing fires my engines more than studying God's Word and then teaching His truth to His people. William McGee once observed, teachers are divided into three classes. Those you can listen to, those you can't listen to, and those you can't help but listen to. And the latter is the person with the gift of teaching. See, teaching defines God's truth. A person with the gift of teaching can take profound truths and make them simple and easy to understand. It was said of a good teacher, he put the cookies on the bottom shelf. That's what I want to do. I've heard it said, a teacher's task is to take a room full of live wires and see that they're all properly grounded. Well, the fourth motivational gift is the gift of exhortation. Teaching instructs us what to do, but exhortation encourages, it, encourages and motivates us to do it. It demands God's truth. See, the person with this gift challenges others and inspires them and incites them to action. This person is the spiritual booster cables who jumpstarts brothers and sisters with weak batteries. There was once an ocean liner. It was in the midst of a storm when a woman fell overboard. The passengers were clinging to the ship's rail, watching when suddenly a man dove into the icy waters, and he rescued this drowning lady. Well, everyone was surprised when the hero turned out to be an 80-year-old man. Later, the crew threw a party in his honor, and the hero was called up and asked to give a speech. The old man stood and he said, I just have one thing to say. Who pushed me? At times, we all need a little push, don't we? We sure do. We need a little push to do what's right. And the person with the gift of exhortation knows how to apply a gentle kick in the pants when it's needed. Well, the fifth gift on Paul's list is the gift of giving. And again, giving is a discipline that we all should develop. But the person with the gift of giving just has a special knack for loosening the purse strings to bless others and to further God's work. I'll never forget the guy that God used at Calvary Chapel Stone Mountain. He had the gift of giving. God had blessed his business, and he loved to give back to the Lord. And he had an interesting method of distributing his gifts. He would give out $100 handshakes. That's what we called them. This fellow would come to church, he would take a crisp new $100 bill, he would fold it up really tiny, and he'd put it in the palm of his hand. And then you would walk up to him, and you would shake his hand, and you're all of a sudden... Because he would pass you one of those $100 bills. Never on a Sunday morning that that man was there, I didn't shake his hand. (laughs) 
That guy was more welcome than anybody else in the church. Everybody shook his hand. Paul says that he who has the gift of giving needs to exercise it with liberality. The word suggests that we give with no ulterior motives, with no strings attached. If you possess the gift of giving, give freely and give selflessly. God desires, this is a tremendous gift to encourage others and to further God's work. Well, the sixth gift is the gift of leading. Spiritual management, we could call it. 1 Corinthians 14 verse 40 tells us, Let all things be done decently and in order. You recall when Jesus led the 5, 000, fed the 5,000, He first organized the multitude in groups of 50, you remember? Jesus was organized. Throughout the Bible, we learn that God is organized, and we should be too. It's been said, don't agonize, organize. And that's why God has gifted certain individuals within the body of Christ with gifts to help us get organized and mobilize our efforts. Did you know that every year the makers of duct tape give a $5,000 award for the most creative use of their product? One year, the prize went to a man named Anthony Green, who was scheduled on a flight from Honduras to Guatemala. The pilot announced that there was a hole in the wing, and the flight would be delayed. Green pulled out the duct tape that he carried with him everywhere he went. He patched the hole with it, and the airplane made its destination on time. You know, some people in the church do the same thing. They know how to patch things up and make things fly. These are good people to have around. God gives some members of the body of Christ the gift of leading to help us reach our God-appointed destinations on time. And then the seventh and final motivational gift is the gift of mercy. Mercy has been defined as your pain in my heart. It's two hearts tugging at the same load. Again, we're all called to be merciful, but the believer with the gift of mercy has the special capacity to feel and identify and empathize with another person's suffering. Paul tells those with the gift of mercy to exercise it with cheerfulness. You see, because of their sensitivity and sympathy, people with this gift can be drawn into the depression of the person that they're trying to help. The two empathizers get together and they end up in a giant pity party. That's why if you exercise the gift of mercy, you should reach out with a merry heart. Do it cheerfully. Stay upbeat. The joy of the Lord is your strength. Use your gift. This is the sixth way that we learn how to walk in God's will. Of course, the question will often arise. Pastor Sandy you say every believer has a spiritual gift, but how do I identify mine? Well, the answer to that question is surprisingly easy. If you want to know what your spiritual gift is, ask yourself one question. If I were made the pastor of Calvary Chapel today, what would I immediately want to do? What would be the first changes I would want to make? Well, if you say, man, we need to get more involved in social issues. We need to take more of a public stand for righteousness. Well, there you have it. You probably have the gift of prophecy. 
Or if you respond, no, we need to get involved helping each other. We need to reach out to the elderly. We need to go from house to house and help fix things and stuff. Well, then you've got the gift of mercy. Ministry, I'm sorry. Or if you say, no, we need classes on theology and the cults and apologetics, even a course in New Testament Greek. Yep, that's the gift of teaching. Or if your response is, oh, we need more home fellowships, more small groups. We need opportunities to encourage and challenge each other. That's exhortation. Or you might say, we need to put more stress on giving to missions and assisting the poor. Let's add to the benevolence fund. That's the gift of giving. Or maybe your response is, I'd love to be the pastor of this church. I'm so frustrated with the lack of organization around this place. (laughs) We need better lines of communication here. Perhaps your gift is the gift of leading. Or if you say, let's start a prison ministry, or let's visit the shut-ins. Well, that's the beautiful gift of mercy. Now, if you need a little more help identifying your gift, here's another exercise for you you can try. Let's say that my granddaughter, Hannah, she's six years old. Let's say she makes a little potted plant for me in Sunday school. And after church, she decides she wants to take it and give it to G-Daddy. So she comes running down the center aisle of the church, but halfway down, she trips and falls. She drops her little plant, crash on the floor, dirt and pottery are spilled everywhere. How would you react? How would you react to that situation? Well, if your first move is to be to jump up and start looking for a broom and dustpan so that you could clean up, well, then you got the gift of ministry, serving. Or if your first reaction would be to pull out your wallet and offer to pay her for that broken piece of pottery and that plant, well, then you got the gift of giving. If you would say to my granddaughter, Now, young Hannah, Let this be a warning. (laughs) Thus saith the Lord, there will be many opportunities to stumble in life, and you need to watch it your steppeth from heareth on it. (laughs) Then you got the gift of prophecy. (laughs) Or if your first reaction is to show Hannah a little clever foot maneuver where she can right herself the next time she starts to slip, then your gift is the gift of teaching. Or if your first thought is, my How can we rearrange the chairs in this room so that this will never happen again? Well, that's leading an organization. Or maybe you'll just put your arm around Hannah and give her a little pep talk. That's okay, little girl. Next time, you'll do fine. Don't quit trying. Please, you'll do better. That's the gift of exhortation. Or if you rush in and pick her up and cuddle her and, Oh, let me kiss you little bitty boo-boos, Hannah. Well, you have the gift of mercy. But realize, if Hannah were to fall in the aisle in our service here and broke her potted plant, there would be seven diverse reactions among the Christians in this room. All of which would be valid, God-ordained reactions. And if we realize this, We can save ourselves a lot of conflict and avoid a lot of disharmony. Say you've got the gift of mercy, and you see a guy with the gift of prophecy standing over Hannah, warning her about trip-ups. 
you might assume that that guy is insensitive and callous. Who does he think he is talking to that little girl like that? Or if you have the gift of ministry and you see a fellow teaching Grant some, I mean, uh, Hannah some funny steps, you know, not to do this again, then you could think, look at that lazy jerk. Why doesn't he want to help clean up? You see, everybody's tendency is to judge other people in the body of Christ on the basis of their own giftedness. And yet in doing so can destroy our unity. Don't forget, we all have different gifts that cause us to react to situations differently. There would be seven different reactions, valid reactions, in this room to the same situation. Just be glad everyone is not like you and that other points of view exist in the body. You see, a healthy church appreciates its diversity. Well, how do you discover and walk in God's will for your life? It's not as hard as you think. It's just six steps. Present your body. Give your body to God. Second, renew your mind. Third, humble your heart. Fourth, exercise your faith. Fifth, find your place. And sixth, identify and use your gift. Follow those six steps and your life will prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. Walking in the will of God is not as complicated as we make it. We just need to get up and start moving. I hope you'll begin that process tonight.